If that's problematic for you and find yourself stuck at a particular body composition, welcome to the Primer Blueprint Podcast. And you want to move on from there. From our studios in Malibu, California. Then that would be the opportunity to say, okay, what sort of a choice would be better for me in accomplishing my goal? Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Kearns, and our favorite guest, Mark Sisson. And Mark, we're trying something new today, a remote recording from you chilling in, of all places, Las Vegas. What's happening out there? Uh, Well, you know, um, I'm not the biggest fan of the lifestyle that uh, Vegas promotes, but um, we're here for my daughter's birthday, and she flew some friends in from around the country, so we've got a couple of days that we're going to spend together, so I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, I have to say, a lot of people disparage Vegas when they're talking about, oh, it's the worst place to be primal, but you can make it happen in Vegas, too, with those buffets and everything, right? You forage on the buffet line. I mean, it's actually a a pretty fun uh, personal challenge to get into a buffet line where there's rolls and and, uh, sweet stuff and, uh, you know, all kinds of nasty oils and head straight for the meat, the fish, and the vegetables. That's great. So here we are well into our uh, podcast momentum, rising up the charts on iTunes and holding steady. So we really appreciate that from the listeners. And after the first uh, numerous shows that we kind of programmed the topics, I thought today that we would uh, take some of the more insightful questions that listeners have sent in over the past several weeks and just hit these pretty hard. What do you think, Mark? No, that sounds like a good idea. We've, I think we've... Um we prompted a lot of questions after the first several podcasts, so uh, I would encourage listeners to keep them coming. In fact, we have this this function called SpeakPipe that you can actually record your question if you want, and uh, it's there on uh, Mark's Daily Apple, and I think it's a, a tab on the podcast. Uh, but at the very least, just send them in through email. We'd love to answer them. Yes, this is your chance to be famous because the SpeakPipe will actually play your recorded question into the program. And as for now, we've had more response from people writing in the questions. So let me get to it with our first one. And this is from Stephen in Montana. And he says, I enjoy a bagel most every morning with butter or sometimes locks. I run about 25 miles a week, so I'm not insulin resistant or dealing with a concern about excess body fat. I don't seem to feel any ill effects from the bagel such as the gluten issues described in the Primal Blueprint. And I also enjoy an occasional pizza or other grain food with seemingly no ill effects. Do I really have to eliminate these grain foods to be primal? Well, see, Brad, that's kind of a trick question because one of the sort of definitions of being primal is reducing your intake of grain products and particularly those made with wheat. So uh, on the one hand, uh, we've got a guy who's doing 25 miles a week of running who's you know, who's seemingly healthy in all other respects, who's not feeling any ill effects. And, you know, even even though I'm a proponent of living a paleo or a primal lifestyle, I would say, okay, if it's if that's working for you and you don't feel any ill effects and you love your life and you're enjoying every moment of it, then who am I to suggest that you change anything? On the other hand, um, I know from my own personal experience that I assumed for a long time when I was eating a lot of grain-based foods to to supply calories so that I could go out and train hard, uh, I assumed that everything was fine and and that, you know, the minor little aches and pains that I was experiencing or the minor little uh, stuffiness I had once in a while or the heartburn that I might have suffered on occasion, you know, I just assumed those were all natural and, and had nothing to do with the grain-based diet. And it wasn't until I gave up the grains that I realized, wow, you know, my arthritis went away and my, my IBS uh, flare-ups went c- completely away and all of these other things that I'd assume were normal went away. So, so, 
This is about choices. We say this a lot. This is, this is not about a right or wrong, black or white, good or bad way to live your life. This is about choices that people make based on information that you and I, Brad, help supply. And in those choices, um, you know, there, there are pros and cons. You make a list. If, if, um, if the question here is, should I give up uh, pizza and my bagel with locks just for the sake of owning a primal card, uh, you know, is that is that worth the loss of the great taste of the bagel or the amazing feeling that I get when I eat pizza? I don't know. This, this is a, you know, it's a personal decision. Um, you know, I would tell anybody who's doing that amount of training and who is otherwise reasonably fit, you know, would it hurt to maybe give up the grains for three weeks or, or a month and see if you notice anything? And if you don't notice anything, then fine, reintroduce those foods and, and go back to the way it was and and um, you know, live your life with complete enjoyment because that ultimately is why we do everything that we do. Yeah, a statement you made in the 21-day total body transformation comes to mind here, and that is that we don't even know what baseline is because we've been eating this way our entire lives. And I have to say for myself, here on this podcast that was delayed because I got sick and was all stuffed up last week, and it was the first illness of any kind I've contracted in the six years that I've been eating Primal, that I switched cold turkey to Primal six years ago. And before that, Mark, I was sick two or three times a year with a cold, and I thought that was fine and routine, and everybody gets sick two or three times a year with a cold and a a couple other sore throats. But all that went away, and I established a new baseline after eliminating the grains and sugars from my diet. So in Steve's case, like you said, he could try a 21-day elimination just for the fun of it because he's obviously interested in the movement and see what happens and see if he noticed any further beneficial effects or absence of minor aches and pains like you mentioned with your history. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up, you know, your having gotten sick last week because we can also probably go back and, and, and look at what events might have led up to your lapse in um, immune function for, you know, you know, were you under stress? Were you getting enough sleep? Did you have that, that lapse of judgment and eat a piece of cake or something like that? And I'm not pointing the finger at you, Brad, but I'm suggesting that whenever these things happen to me, you know, if I go back and I kind of review what, what events led up to that, and I, I can sometimes pinpoint what I did to cause whatever affliction I had. And, and, it's a kind of a good news, bad news thing when you go primal. The good news is that you tend to uh, achieve a higher level of health. You tend to have more energy. You tend to lose uh, excess body fat. Uh, you tend to think more clearly and all these other great benefits that we're seeking. The bad news is that if you, if you go off the wagon, you really notice it. You know, you really, if you, if you do have a lapse in judgment or make a choice that maybe wasn't so um, appropriate for your stated goals, uh, you know, you wake up the next morning with, uh, you know, that hangover feeling or maybe you got a sore throat or, or, a, or a stuffiness or something like that. In my, in, in, you know, in my review of all of the testimonials that we've gotten over the years, I can usually go back and you can kind of forensically identify what mistakes were made that caused that lapse in uh, immune function or caused that little germ that otherwise the immune system would have kicked out to maybe take hold a little bit. And it's really kind of a Again, it's, this is all about empowering people to make these kind of choices. Hey, this is great. I'm going to cut in line here with a, a personal question for the benefit of our listeners, of course. But speaking of uh, getting sick, 
Uh, my flight was delayed one night after a business trip got in at 1 a.m., which is about three hours past my bedtime. And I woke up the next day and said, well, it's been a while since I've been to the gym. So I went and did a brief high-intensity strength training workout per Primal Blueprint guidelines. Obviously, that was too much for me in that state, in that uh, sleep-delayed, jet-lag state. But I have a question about that, and that is when you show up at the gym and you're trying to adhere to a reasonable schedule, how, what kind of signs do you have that it might not be the right day that you might want to observe or, or give to our listeners? Well, that's funny because there are days when I show up at the Malibu gym and 10 or 12 minutes into my warm-up or my workout, I literally just turn around and go home. And, and people will notice that and go, dude, you, you haven't been here that long. What, what did you do? And I go, well, I didn't really do anything. I started to do something and I wasn't feeling it today. And I have over the years gotten to this point where intuitively I can tell if I'm going to do myself some damage. It might be I'm just prone to injury. It might be that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I might not have gotten enough sleep the night before, or I might be stressed from something else, or I might have worked out too hard uh, the two prior days and hadn't given myself enough time to recover. And really, that's that's a skill that I've developed that I want to teach other people, that I want to teach you, Brad, uh, to be able to go to the gym and be able to turn around if you don't have it and say, you know what, I'm I'm not going to detrain. I'm not going to lose all my muscle mass and all my fitness because I took today off. And in fact, taking today off might be the best choice in the moment, even though it said on my calendar, Tuesday is a heavy leg day. Um, you know, you show up, if you don't have it, it makes little sense to, to power through it and struggle through it. I mean, who, you know, who are you doing that for? Are you doing it for extra credit? Or are you doing it because you're trying to prove yourself that you're, you know, that you've, that you've, uh, you're able to, to overcome adversity? No, I mean, we're, we're going to the gym because we're trying, theoretically, we're going to the gym because we're trying to improve our fitness, improve our health, and, and you know, accomplish tasks with ease and grace and not have to struggle through them every time. Right, and I think there's something to note that we've been so conditioned by the fitness industry to be consistent, to record our totals and get your little chart and, and write down how many plates you use and all those things. And that drives us into kind of a chronic or an obsessive mentality rather than the intuitive mentality that we go to great lengths. We discussed it on the previous podcast, but that's an important set. So, you're, you know, let's say your very first set, you put on the requisite amount of plates for your bench press or whatever you're doing, and it just doesn't feel right. That would be a, a huge indicator, right? Absolutely. You know, the other day I, um, I had my own personal story here. I went to the, to the gym. This is three days ago, and I normally warm up with three sets of 50 push-ups. And into the third set, I felt a little twinge in my pecs. And I just, at that point, I knew enough to just say, you know what, the workout's done for today. And rather than, again, plow through and maybe do any kind of damage, because I'm not even sure I was going to do any damage, but that little twinge, that little tweak was enough to, to tell me I maybe hadn't fully recovered from whatever chest work I'd done within the last three or four days. And I'm, I'm happy that I did that because this is three days later and I don't feel it anymore. And I'm glad I took the time off. And I, at my age, it's really about avoiding injury more than anything else. So I'm not trying to set personal records. I'm not trying to, you know, incrementally increase every, every weight that I do or every box jump that I do or every long jump or every sprint 
uh, dro- trying to drop the times. I'm really trying to just stay fit enough to be able to play and in the interim to not to not get injured. So most of my training is complicated, complicated, contemplated to keep me from getting injured. And so it was like ironic that my workout was going to injure me the other day. But it was one of those things where once I felt that, I said, you know what, this is uh, this is it's a sign that today's not the day. And I just uh, packed up my gear and went home. Right. You know where else we see that frequently is with the Olympic sprinters and they'll come to a meet. They might even be the featured athlete in that meet with thousands of people watching them. And on occasion during the warm up, they will announce that they are pulling out of the competition because of a slight twinge in their hamstring because they're so sensitive and so highly calibrated. So my thinking is if they can do it and if an elite athlete can back off, certainly the average person can skip that workout if it's not meant to be on that day. You know, Sean White uh, talk, took a lot of grief for dropping out of the half pipe in the Olympic Games recently, uh, or excuse me, dropping out of the um, slope style event, and uh, so that he could focus on the half pipe. And you know, I thought on the one hand that took a lot of guts, and I and I appreciated his choice. Obviously, he took some flack because I think he, he took a space from another potential qualifier, which was politically incorrect. But but I think fr- from a personal point of view, to be able to recognize the dangers inherent and and predisposition to some kind of injury. Um, you know, it just makes for a smart athlete. Right, and something to emulate even on a small scale, the average guy heading out for a jog or what have you. And I think anyone who's in the endurance community can refer back to overuse injuries and the 17 warnings they had before they finally went into IT band syndrome or whatever they have. Right. Hey, let's take another question. This is from Anne in Richmond, Virginia. And she writes in saying, Dear Mark, A friend introduced me to the Primal Eating and Lifestyle Program about two years ago, and I love it. I've experienced improvements in health, fitness, performance, and body composition, and I'm pretty excited to share my success with others. However, I'm finding it's not so easy. Can you give me some tips to successfully get friends and family interested, motivated, and inspired to try Primal Eating and Lifestyle practices without getting turned off? That's a tough one because... uh you know, that's the business I'm in is trying to uh, to convince people that this is a, a, a great choice. Um, having said that, I will always refrain from having a, a debate with a with a vegan or a vegetarian about whose <laughs> eating style is more appropriate. Uh, so I don't like to get into these sorts of political discussions uh, with family or friends unless they invite it. And typically how they invite it Uh, and I see this again with a lot of our testimonials, is when you live this lifestyle and you start to see the results and you start to show the results, you know, your skin clears up, you've lost some weight, there's a twinkle in your eyes, there are a lot of other um, obvious manifestations of a change in you. You don't get, again, don't get sick as often. People tend to say, what have you been doing? What, you know, what's your secret? How do you, how have you achieved this? And that's the point at which you can say, well, let me tell you what I've been doing. It's quite easy. I, I exercise less and I eat more fat, um, which is always a great uh, icebreaker. But beyond that, it's very difficult to convince family and friends. And, the, and what I find the best way to do this is to start preparing meals uh, using some of the 500 paleo and primal cookbooks that are out there right now. One of the things that we've noticed from virtually all of these wonderful paleo meals is historically people who have not never heard of paleo or don't know about any kind of low-carb eating style will partake of some of these foods and go, wow, this is the best food I've ever eaten. 
Brad, you and I know that at PrimalCon, when we serve people these fully primal meals, people will say, this is, this, this is some of the best food I've ever had in my life. So that's sort of the, the entry level for me is, is the ability to invite guests over, prepare a fully paleo meal or primal meal. Don't even tell them that it's that and, and have them, you know, enjoy it. And if they start to ask questions about what is it and how do you, you know, what's the basis behind this, then you go into the explanation. But other than that, it's really, it's a question of just setting an example. If you set an example for your kids, they'll tend to follow it. If you prepare good meals for your spouse, uh, the, and and they certainly, there, there's nothing about a good paleo home-cooked meal that I think anybody is going to turn down unless they're, uh, you know, a staunch vegan or vegetarian. It really is about just living the life uh, for yourself and then allowing others to see how you have uh, flourished and succeeded doing so. Great. Thanks, Mark. Here's another question. And this is from Carl in Michigan. He says, Mark, I'm a devoted user of Primal Calm. And I'm wondering if you have any concerns that the product is derived from soy, which of course is not primal, and is also often from GMO source. Secondly, I know Primal Calm is great to use during periods of heavy stress, such as jet travel, work deadlines, or intense blocks of exercise. But what about if I'm under a ton of chronic stress in my life every day? Should I take this product every day? And how have you used it personally over the past 20 years? Well, um, first of all, Primal Calm, C-A-L-M, Calm, was designed by me for me because I don't handle stress that well. Uh, I tried meditating. doesn't work for me. I'm not really into uh, other standard forms of uh, stress mediation, whether it's uh, brainwave monitoring or prayer or, you know, I guess the when I was in my running days, that was my form of meditation. I was out, uh, you know, on my own for an hour to two hours at a time. I guess you could call that as some form of meditation. But for the most part, I'm I really I'm kind of high strung and I'm kind of a type A and I'm always going after, you know, new projects and things. And I tend to be a little bit more of a worrier than I than my wife would have me be. So I don't handle stress as well as I'd like to. And my really my only alternative was to create a supplement that I could take that would allow my body to better handle stress. So uh, I created a product called Primal Calm. It's got five different ingredients, one of which is phosphatidylserine. And phosphatidylserine is a, an amazing phospholipid. It's an integral part of every cell membrane, but really predominant on uh, nerve cells, brain cells, and, and such. It's a, it's a functioning molecule. It's a working molecule on the membrane. We don't get much in our diet. The body doesn't make much, and we lose it as we get older. So in my mind, it makes a great deal of sense in terms of longevity uh, and quality of life to supplement with phosphatidylserine. Now, phosphatidylserine originally had a lot of great research done uh, as an anti-stress nutrient. Uh, it literally lowers the amount of cortisol secreted by the body in response to stress. Some of the initial studies by Monteleone uh, showed that uh, when you gave uh, – this ties in, by the way, to our prior question – when you made bodybuilders or – weightlifters do successive heavy leg days. You couldn't find a greater stress to impose upon them. So uh, by administering phosphatidylserine to these athletes, it reduced that stress hormone cortisol that was secreted in response to these, these heavy leg days that, would, that were done successively. Pretty compelling studies. And over the years, there's been some studies that done on, on uh, neurological function, exam taking, test taking, things like that. So phosphatidylserine, and by the way, the original tests were done on bovine 
brain tissue derived phosphatidylserine. That's not only an example of, of how predominant it is in the brain, uh, it's also an example of how expensive the stuff could be to, uh, to have to derive it from brain tissue if that were the only source. So a number of years ago, they figured out a way to derive it from soy, uh, soy lecithin. So the, the, the original question is, am I concerned about the fact that phosphatidylserine is derived from soy? And the short answer is no. And the, the, again, the longer explanation is, first of all, you've gotten rid of the main uh, genistines and deadsins in the soy that are, could be considered problematic and phytoestrogenic. Secondly, you know, I use a 70% PS, which is a wickedly expensive raw material. So by the time you've, you've done the extraction and you've gotten down to the phospholipid components, and by the way, it's not just uh, phosphatidylserine, there's phosphatidylcholine, there's phosphatidylethanolamine and inositol, there's a number of different other phospholipid fractions, all of which are important and necessary and, um, and really cool to be supplementing with. So that's why I have zero concern about the fact that this is originally derived from soy. There's, there's none of the original soy protein remaining in it. People who, who even have soy allergies um, typically have zero response to large doses of phosphatidylserine. Also, just of note, Primal Calm also has uh, several other ingredients, magnolia bark, uh, beta-cetosterol, some calcium and magnesium. Uh, it's a, it's an amazing. It's got a, a form of um, ginseng in it, some Siberian ginseng extract. So it's, a, it's a, quite an elegant little formula for helping you better deal with uh, stress and anxiety. So the next part of that question was, you know, how often would I use it or do I use it? And I use it, I use it as I need it. And I could take it, you could take it every day. It's quite, it was designed to be taken every day for people who feel they need that. Um, I just typically only take it if I feel like I'm under more stress than usual. And, and uh, so that means I might take it a couple of times a week. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very proud of that little uh, formula that I created about 15 years ago. And I've been using this for years and years, especially during my career as a triathlete with those extremely lengthy and challenging training days and I would take mass quantities of it on the most difficult days or in and around uh, long jet travel periods. And you mentioned the, the major benefit was that it blunts cortisol after during such stressful experiences. Can you talk a little bit further about why that is so beneficial? Yeah, it's training is a interesting concept because the idea behind training is that you want to do a little bit of damage. You want to damage um, what, or damage is probably a, the wrong word. You want to stress different systems in the body. And sometimes that does result in some micro tear. And we, we might even call that damage at the, at the muscle cell level. But it also stresses enzyme systems in the, in the world of endurance training. You know, we're, we're going out there and we're pushing the envelope with regard to fuel partitioning, for instance. And so if we, if we're going to do a five-hour ride and we haven't fueled ourselves appropriately or we're riding beyond our ability to burn, to access and burn fat as the main fuel, uh, we dip into our glycogen stores too much. And at some point, if we run out of glycogen, the body has to go to uh, alternative means of producing glucose to keep the body going and to keep the brain going. And it does that partly by secreting cortisol. Cortisol is an emergency hormone the body makes in response to this stress. Cortisol, among its many other features, tears down muscle tissue so that certain amino acids can be sent to the liver to be converted into glucose to be sent back to the brain to, to keep the brain going. So 
uh, hard periods of hard training will cause the body to respond by the secretion of uh, larger amounts of cortisol. Now, on a day-to-day, once-in-a-while basis, this might not be bad. But on a uh, chronic basis, on, a, on an everyday basis, the um, continued and chronic secretion of cortisol has some very deleterious effects. Uh, as I said, it tears down muscle tissue. Uh, it prevents the uptake of calcium by bones. So bones, even though you're out there doing weight-bearing activity, for the most part, if you're a runner or a triathlete, uh, the bones don't take in the calcium as, uh, as readily. So your, your bone density drops. Uh, it certainly suppresses the immune system. And uh, b- back to, again, what came up in the original question in this podcast, I can, re- I can go back and I can remember three workouts, three specific workouts I did in my career where I felt I knew exactly that I that I'd gone to the well too much, and I'd done one, you know, uh, 800 meter run too many, or I'd gone 10 minutes too long on my time trial workout, and I could feel the effects with the adrenal glands, and sure enough, got sick on each of those three occasions within 36 hours of that workout, uh, largely because cortisol is such a uh, potent. A suppressor of the immune system. Now you ask, well, why would a you know why would the body set up a system like that where it would suppress the immune system? Well, from survival point of view, you've got two million years of humans not going out and willingly training, but just going out and, and living day to day and trying to survive. Now all of a sudden you 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 encounter a life or death survival situation. You need this hormone to get you through the next couple of hours because if you don't survive the next couple of hours then your genes have been eliminated from the gene pool. So cortisol works wonders in the short term by taking emergency measures like uh, shutting down the immune system. Why waste resources trying to identify something that might kill me in three weeks when I might not live the next three hours? This all makes sense in the context of survival, but it, but it becomes a problem in the context of day-to-day living when we're out there not just training hard, but we're worrying about the overdue bills or the nagging spouse or the, the screaming kids or the neighbors next door making too much noise or the traffic on the way to our, on our daily commute. We set up all of these additional stresses in our lives that have the same effect on the adrenals. They, the, the adrenal gland shoots out cortisol and, you know, and epinephrine and, uh, you know, adrenaline, but cortisol is sort of that, that one hormone that a little bit of, of it is a good thing and may help uh, your training effect in the short term, may help you survive the next, uh, you know, bout of real true stress, but in the long term can also kill you. So uh, back to the application of primal calm and the concept of mitigating stress and the, and the notion that each of these choices that we make uh, in terms of training has an outcome. It has a, a potential ramification. And if we understand the ramifications of those choices, then we can better plan a strategy for achieving our goals. So if I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to lift heavy one day, I'm going to secrete a lot of cortisol as a result of that workout. I'm not going to lift heavy the next day or maybe even the day after that because I'm recognizing that I'm, uh, I've gone to the well. Uh, this is a you know, phrase that we use. I've, I've done some damage to my muscles. The only reason I'm doing it is so I'm, a, I'm going to recover and get stronger as a result of it. I'm not trying to do this to kill myself. I'm trying to do this to live longer and to have more muscle mass and to improve in sports. And so I'm, I'm trying to be 
very, very um, smart about how I orchestrate my workouts. Right, so and speaking of being smart, just a shout out to the, the serious fitness enthusiasts, the peak performers, you might, because of all that cortisol in your bloodstream, actually feel pretty good for many hours after that fight or flight response initiation, right? Not only right, but in the early days of doping in the Tour de France, people would take various forms of cortisone shots and creams during a race because it would it would give you that extra short-term burst of feeling good and energy. Obviously, the not obviously, but what you need to know is that it's in the long term, uh, there's a price that you pay. But for a lot of Tour de France cyclists who needed to get out there and 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 have every available ounce of energy they could summon, in some cases that meant using an artificial means, an artificial source of of cortisone. Or cortis, you know, it's an artificial cortisone. Uh, the shot is called cortisone. The, the, the artificial chemical is called cortisone, but the endogenous one is called cortisol. Um, it has the same effect. It causes gluconeogenesis. Well, it, you know, you're trying to drive more glucose to the muscles and to the brain. And however you can do that, whether artificially or through your own means, was considered to be, you know, a, a worthwhile choice in the short term. But what a lot of these guys realized over days and days of doing this is that they ultimately fell apart, and they, it was very difficult to to continue that pace for 21 days of the tour without getting sick, without eventually just uh, falling apart. Because, like I say, the cortisol was always contemplated by evolution and nature to be used in used sparingly on a day to day basis. Without cortisol, you just you, you'll die. So you need a little bit, but in in larger doses. Uh, you can only really handle it efficiently or effectively or healthfully, you know, once every every once in a while, not on a continuous chronic basis. Hey, thanks for that long answer, Mark. That was supposed to be like a, a product plug question. But look, Mark Sisson can't help himself and went ahead and dispensed tons of free information. Um, <laughs> and for, for those of you who were uh, maybe getting a little glossed over and feeling like it was too sciencey, this seems to be, this management of stress and the adrenal glands and the stress hormones seems to be the ultimate goal or the ultimate challenge of modern life and really uh, the ultimate goal, the primal blueprint. So it's important stuff and maybe you should rewind and listen to that discourse about cortisol again because it really is a make or break issue for many people of all different levels of uh, fitness and, and lifestyle goals. So how about another question, Mark? This is Zachary from San Juan Capistrano, California, and he asks, I'm quite primal aligned with my eating, but I notice that no matter how well I've eaten during the day, I get a craving for something sweet late at night before bed. I realize that I'm not even hungry at these times, but I still head to the kitchen and find something to munch on, like dark chocolate or sometimes a bowl of cereal. What do you think is going on here, and should I be concerned? Well, you know, should I be concerned? Um, the, the answer is no, not if you're otherwise feeling great about your your body composition, your health, uh, your energy levels, and all the other things that we talk about as uh, as the major uh, markers of of uh, good health. But you know, it does bring up a, an interesting concept, and that is this late night eating and why we do it. I think one of the reasons we do it is because it's there. You know, anybody who says, well, I, I'm, uh, I find myself looking for the chocolate or for the cereal 
late at night, I go, well, okay, the easiest way to fix that is don't have any chocolate or cereal in the house. Uh, and of course, one of the, one of the hints that we give, or one of the, uh, the practical tips I should say that we give in the 21 day total body transformation is to just make sure that you get rid of all the nasty stuff that you don't want to eat. Uh, and you do surround yourself with some otherwise healthful choices and particularly snack choices. So some macadamia nuts, uh, maybe a can of, uh, coconut milk, beef jerky, celery sticks. I mean, there's a number of of possibilities there. It could be that something that's crunchy, like a couple of stalks of celery would be all you need to take the edge off before you go to sleep. I know that that what I do at my house is I always keep berries on hand. So my go-to evening snack, if I just feel like, all right, I got to have something while I'm watching uh, yet another episode of Boardwalk Empire, would be berries. Uh, they're low in sugar, they're tart, they sort of take the edge off. So that's you know, it, it's really is it's a there's a strategic element here of stocking your your pantry or your refrigerator with only those sorts of snacks that kind of fit the profile. Um, another secret snack of mine is uh, coconut butter. So not the cocoa butter, not the not the oily stuff, but the coconut butter, the actual meat that's been ground up the way they would do peanut butter or cashew butter. And one or two small spoonfuls of that is all I, I need to take the edge off whatever craving I might have had. But it does speak to a sort of a larger issue, which is we are all wired to crave sugar. That's just the way it is. For the two and a half million years of evolution where sugar was very rare and finding it was a, was a bonanza and was sort of an encouragement to consume all you could at that time because it was uh, cheap calories that converted to uh, either glucose or glycogen or even fat pretty quickly. Uh, and you knew for a fact that it was not poisonous. So we are wired with this sweet tooth. Some of us suffer a lot more from that sweet tooth than others. One of the challenges in the 21 day total body transformation and in the primal blueprint in general is to develop that skill where you no longer uh, so crave sweets that you completely derail your your program on a daily basis because you have access to them. Uh, we, we, we talk about lowering of simple carbohydrate foods as one of the main initial strategies of the Primal Blueprint. That is, you want to cut back on the grain-based products, uh, cereals, breads, pastas, crackers, cookies, desserts, uh, anything with sugar or, or processed or refined grains. And in doing that, you really do cut way down on the amount of, of um, carbohydrate calories you take in. Now, what's that got to do with sugar? Well, pretty much all carbohydrate calories that you take in or you, that you eat are converted into glucose at some point or another. I mean, they, a few of them might get converted into fructose, but most are converted into glucose. And that glucose is sugar. And it's glucose that the brain is seeking. If it's, if it's craving any kind of sugar, it's craving glucose. So when you cut back on all of these other sources of glucose and you start to improve your ability to burn fat and you improve your brain's ability to, to exist on lower and lower amounts of glucose and, in fact, to be even able to, uh, to use ketones more effectively, you reduce that craving for sugar, that, sort of, that kind of craving that, that has people going crazy. Uh, not just the hardwired craving that all humans have, but that sort of the the acquired craving that so many people have 
given themselves because they've had such access to glucose-containing foods their entire lives. Um, and so speaking all- of, uh, sorry, Mark, speaking of yeah. uh, acquired craving, how big a deal is it to be engaged in a chronic exercise pattern or having a chronically stressful work environment when we're talking about kicking into sugar mode in the evening? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, there's certainly, they go hand in hand that, and we just had that discussion about cortisol. There's some evidence that higher levels of cortisol will increase the tendency to want to consume more sugar. Uh, the brain, you know, which is driving all the functions here, uh, is in charge. And it's the brain that says, look, we need more sugar. And the brain really doesn't care whether you get that from a bowl of Skittles or uh, a bowl of spaghetti. It, it really just becomes glucose once it hit, bypasses the st- or gets past the stomach and goes into the bloodstream. And from there, uh, it satisfies the cravings of the brain. So the, the idea that we can be completely immune from sugar cravings, uh, that's probably not going to happen in our lifetimes, but we can certainly dramatically diminish the tendency to just reach for a bowl of ice cream or the extra chocolates or a bowl of cereal or a bagel or whatever it is, simply by virtue of the fact that it's available, mostly by engaging in this transformation into uh, a better fat burner by lowering the amount of carbohydrates you take in throughout the rest of the day. And then strategically, by just not surrounding yourself with, with those sorts of uh, cheat foods and be, be, you know, filling, your, filling your refrigerator up with, as, as I do, berries, which are very low in uh, glucose and you know, mostly fructose and not much at that. And they sort of have the effect of taking the edge off. Um, Great. Right, so uh, you're saying don't fight it and make some good choices and enjoy the heck out of them. Yeah, even the term good choices is subjective. Um, it's, it's a choice that will work on your behalf. And if you're somebody who is fine with snacking at night and it doesn't affect your sleep and it hasn't affected your body composition or your energy, I, I guess there's no reason to change that. If that's problematic for you and you find yourself stuck at a particular body composition or body fat level, uh, energy level or whatever, and you want to move on from there, then that would be the opportunity to say, okay, what, what sort of a choice now would be better for me in accomplishing my goal? So again, I don't want to harp too much on this, on this notion of choices, but I'm not here to suggest that people's lives suck because they're not primal. I'm here to suggest that by making certain primal type choices, there's a greater likelihood that you might get to your uh, body composition goals or your health goals um, versus doing it the old way with a standard American diet. I will say or make the observation personally that when I have a late evening snack that's higher in carbs, I wake up the next morning and I'm hungry, which is rare. And when I have the usual snack of, let's say, coconut butter, 85% or higher dark chocolate, enjoy that and it doesn't affect my appetite the next morning. So probably that insulin response at nighttime can generate an unpleasant sensation of uh, feeling groggy or whatever uh, your your impact is the following day, making you more likely to um, you know reflect on those choices. Yeah, which is I, I'm, why I go back to the the notion that probably my favorite option would be a spoonful or two of coconut butter because it's high in fat, very satisfying, takes the edge off, doesn't affect uh, insulin at all, and um, you know so you can wake up the next morning feeling like you you didn't have a sugar hangover. 
Hey, Mark, thanks for spending the time with us on your on your family vacation. I really appreciate it, and the listeners do too. And we'll get right back with another episode soon. For now, thanks so much for listening to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Have a great day.